Chapter 13 of Sir Titus Salt, Baronet, His Life and Its Lessons. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. Sir Titus Salt, Baronet, His Life and Its Lessons by Robert Belgarni. Chapter 13. Here finds my heart its rest, repose that knows no shock. The strength of love that keeps it blessed in thee, the riven rock. My soul, as girt around, her citadel hath found. I would love thee as thou lovest me, O Jesus most desired. Ray Palmer the first residence of Mr. Salt at Cronest extended over a period of fourteen years. In the year 1858, he received notice from the proprietor that the house would be required for his own occupation. This was an unexpected announcement to the family, who had been so long settled there that the thought of leaving had not once entered their minds. It was the home where the elder children had grown into maturity and their younger ones had been born, and which had become especially dear to the parents since the shadow of death had twice fallen upon it. Mr. Salt would have bought the property from the owner to secure it as a permanent residence for himself, but the latter declined at that time to sell it, so that no alternative was left but to seek a home elsewhere. In laying out the Saltair estate, the site had been selected by the owner on which he had proposed some day to build a house. That site is perhaps the most beautiful in the neighborhood, commanding as it does an extensive view of the works of Saltaire and the valley of the air beyond Bingley. It is now called the Knoll, from its physical confirmation, on the summit of which stands the residence of Mr. Charles Stead. Had Mr. Salt proceeded at that time to carry out his primary intention of building a family mansion there, considerable time must have elapsed before its completion. But as Crow Nest was soon to be vacated, it was necessary to procure a house which might at once be made ready for his occupation. Among many eligible mansions that came under his notice, Methley Park was the one selected and it is here that he resided for the next nine years, and where various circumstances occurred in his history to which we shall refer in this chapter. Methley Park had been the seat of the Earls of Mexborough for many generations. It is situated six miles from Leeds, on the road to Wakefield, from which it is distant about five miles. At the time to which we refer, the mansion of Methley had remained untenanted for several years. The roof had become dilapidated, the corridors were damp, and the various apartments musty and cobwebbed. While outside, the courtyard and terrace gardens were overgrown with grass and weeds. The beautiful park, with its ancient oaks, the herd of deer, the gardens and plantations, had become objects of attraction to excursionists who roamed whither they listed, sometimes surreptitiously carrying off shrubs and flowers, or leaving names cut on the leaden roof of the mansion as their only claim to immortality. 
it was painfully evident that everything was out of gear on the estate and that some enterprising tenant was needed whose capital and energy might restore it to its former condition mr salt was offered a lease of the place at an almost nominal rent which offer after much deliberation was accepted and he at once instructed his architects to make the necessary preparations for his occupancy this was a herculean task to be accomplished in a limited time but in the execution of it no expense was spared to render the lordly mansion worthy of its antecedent history as we accompanied mr salt in one of his visits to methley park while these preparations were going forward it is as an eye-witness we refer to them and to the striking contrast which their completion afterwards afforded the mansion was then in the hands of a little army of joiners bricklayers painters gilders and cleaners all under the supervision of mr lockwood the terraces and gardens were in course of transformation from the aspect of a wilderness to that of a paradise the park was being thoroughly drained and surrounded by iron fences to keep the deer from straying while throughout the holy state there were manifest signs that the reign of desolation was drawing to a close in a few months all was ready for the migration of the family thither which took place about the end of eighteen fifty eight when it became known in the neighborhood of Cronest that mr salt was about to remove the regret of the inhabitants was widespread as an evidence of it a meeting was held at which it was resolved to present him with an imperial bible bound in the most elaborate style with massive gold clasps the following is a copy of the address inscribed in it to titus salt esq in name of your friends and neighbors at lightcliffe we request your acceptance of this volume as a token of our high esteem for your character and of our deep regret at your removal from amongst us the warm and practical interest which during seventeen years residence in the district you have ever manifested in the promotion and extension of education and everything pertaining to the material moral and spiritual well-being of the inhabitants has endeared you to the community and your departure leaves in many hearts and homes a blank which cannot easily be filled into the scene of your future residence you are followed by the ardent desire of all classes for the happiness of yourself and family it is our earnest prayer that you may long be spared to diffuse around the place of your new abode those kind and genial influences which this neighborhood has so long enjoyed and that in the last remove you may inherit the reward which this sacred volume promises to those who have served their generation according to the will of god december eighteen fifty eight signed by the principal inhabitants of the district let us follow mr salt and his family to methley park and enter the house where they have taken up their new abode the reader who has travelled from leeds to normanton by the midland railway will have observed the beautiful village of methley through which he must pass with the noble mansion and park situated about a mile to the right it is built in a castellated style of light stone and adorned with towers and battlements 
A remark made by Mr. Salt many years before this period is worth recording now. It was in connection with one of his early commercial adventures, and when many persons doubted his success or prognosticated failure, that he said to a friend, I am in for a carriage or a castle. What he meant by the remark was that in the event of failure in his new enterprise, he might perhaps be compelled to take up his abode in York Castle. Happily, the castle which he now entered was not in York, though in Yorkshire, nor was it as a debtor, but as a successful and affluent man of business. The entrance hall is of more ancient date than the other parts of the building, and with its old oak panelling, mullioned windows, stained glass, and organ loft, gives the impression at first sight of an ecclesiastical edifice. But a glance at the walls dispels that impression, for they are hung with old armor and trophies of the chase. It is needless to say that the new abode was furnished with all the elegance and luxurious taste that wealth could command. One circumstance may here be mentioned as illustrative of Mr. Salt's personal character. He said, I want my house made as attractive to my sons as possible, that they may not have to seek amusement from home. Hence, every provision was made for indoor and outdoor amusement and recreation, such as workshop and billiard room, shooting, riding, fishing, etc. By this change of abode he was now further removed from his works, the distance being about twenty miles. Still, when business required his presence, this was no obstacle, and the time of his appearance there was always known. Those of his sons who resided with him, and were partners in the business, generally preceded their father thither. Thus relieved of many duties, he was enabled to attend more to matters of a public kind, amongst which those connected with parliamentary life claimed his attention. In the previous chapter, reference was made to his election as one of the representatives of Bradford. Though the honor conferred upon him on that occasion was really the highest his fellow townsmen could offer, yet whether he was wise in accepting, it is open to question. In the opinion of many, he was not fitted for the post, either by his habits or previous training, but this seems one of those rare occasions in his life where he allowed his judgment to be swayed by the wishes of others, and he paid the penalty for it afterwards. During the session of Parliament his seat in the House was always occupied, and his name found on every division list. But within the walls of St. Stephen's his voice was never heard, except on some formal occasion, such as the presentation of a petition. To him it was a scene widely different from that which he had been long familiar. Speaking had always been his weak point, but here it was the chief business. Early rising and retiring had been the rule of his life. Now the long sittings, the heated atmosphere, irregular hours both of diet and sleep, the exciting debates and divisions, were enough to exhaust any man's energies, much more his, so unaccustomed to such an experience. In the House of Commons at that time, several of his personal friends had seats, such as Cobden, Bright, Crosley, and Baines. Palmerston, Russell, Gladstone, and Disraeli were then conspicuous as statesmen. 
To be associated with such men was, doubtless, a great honor, but it could not compensate for the broken sleep, the shattered nerves, and gouty twinges from which he so frequently suffered. Whether he intended remaining in Parliament till its dissolution, we cannot say. At all events, he never took up his residence in London, but, with his wife and family, occupied apartments at Fenton's Hotel, St. James Street. On Sundays he attended Westminster Chapel, and enjoyed the ministry of the Reverend Samuel Martin, who, in addition to his ordinary services, had a devotional meeting every week for the members of Parliament. Mr. Salt was one of many to whom such a meeting was a spiritual boon. But how thankful he was, when an opportunity occurred, to escape from the excitement of parliamentary life to Yorkshire, to see how business proceeded at Saltair, or to rest amid the quiet scenes of Methley. On one occasion he came to Scarborough for its bracing air. We were then struck with his altered appearance. His countenance was haggard, his spirits depressed, and his walking powers considerably impaired. When asked as to the state of his health, the answer given was, I'm a weary man. Thus it was apparent that his short parliamentary career had seriously affected his health. So low was he brought that his thoughts dwelt on his latter end, which, to him, seemed approaching, and he began to make some necessary arrangements in anticipation of that solemn event. Mr. Lockwood was summoned to Scarborough, and instructions were given for the erection of a family mausoleum at Saltair. Thank God it was not to be required for him until seventeen years had elapsed, and many great and noble purposes of benevolence had been accomplished. The present state of Mr. Salt's health seemed to the writer a suitable occasion for pressing upon his attention those momentous matters relating to his personal salvation and a future state of existence. It seemed hardly compatible with the mutual friendship that had existed so long to maintain utter silence on such subjects. Accordingly, on the following Sunday, the topic of discourse was chosen with a view to comfort the weary and direct such to the only true source of rest. The text selected was from Isaiah 1.4. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. With the manuscript of the sermon before us, a short extract may be taken, just to show the word in season that was made a blessing to his soul. The preacher first described the weary efforts of a caterpillar to reach the top of a painted pole in quest of foliage, but there was nothing for it there but the bare piece of wood, and it groped all around in vacant space as if disappointed. Thus it is with men. You may see them striving to reach some worldly object in quest of that which can satisfy their spiritual nature. There is a weary soul. And wealth says, Come up to me. Is not this a word in season to the weary? But when he climbs the pole to the top and looks round, the tree of life is not there. There is a weary soul. And honor says, Come up to me. Is not this a word in season? But when he reaches the top, 
there is nothing that can satisfy. There is another weary one. And ambition says, come up to me. Is not this a word in season? To be accounted great, learned, and wise, he climbs to the highest pinnacle of science. Perhaps he can count the stars and weigh them by a powerful calculus. Yet, after all, there is a void in his heart, unfilled, for God is not there. There is another weary one. And superstition says, come up to me. For that word come is always welcome to the weary, and she takes the veil, as it is called, and renounces the world. Farewell forever to its pomps and vanities. Now for a life devoted to religion. Nothing but vespers, vigils, fasts, the counting of beads, and the repetition of collects. Is the soul satisfied with these? Has the heart found rest? I traveled once from London with two sisters of mercy. Beautiful name. They were clad in serge, which is the garb of mourning. They were thickly veiled like those bereft. Nevertheless, their half-concealed features were sometimes visible. The lines of sorrow were written there, with all the tracery of melancholy. They neither spoke, nor looked up, nor smiled. Ah, they had climbed the pole of superstition, and yet they were not happy. They had devoted their lives to the outward ceremonies of religion, but there was still an aching void which these things could not fill. They were seeking the living among the dead. Such, brethren, is the specimen of the weariness of men. What does it all prove? It proves that man needs rest. But from the nature of those objects pursued, from the disappointment that ensues when the objects are reached, it is evident rest cannot be found in them. Yea, the very effort to climb wearies the soul all the more. I tell you, until the soul comes to live in God himself, it can never be satisfied. Suppose that, in watching the movements of that poor caterpillar, you pitied it, and carried it to some leafy tree, and put it up among the branches, it would live there. And what is the cross of Jesus? But a tree of life which God has planted here, and by which fallen creatures may climb back to God. But man is blind, as well as fallen and the Holy Spirit comes to open blind eyes and to lead weary souls to the cross. Is not Christ the living vine? Oh, when the soul begins to feed on him, it begins to live. Weary souls, behold the Savior on the cross. He says, Come unto me. Words in season, indeed. You have climbed other poles in quest of good. Let your affections be entwined round the cross, and by this you will climb to the skies. You have sought it in wealth, now seek it in Christ. You have sought it in honor. Why not now aspire to become heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ? You have climbed the heights of knowledge, 
Acquaint yourself with him who to know is life eternal. You have gazed, perhaps, on the crucifix. Let the eye of faith be turned to the living Christ. Let the hand of faith grasp him. The arms of faith embrace him as all your salvation and desire. And verily, you shall find rest. We offer no apology for the insertion of the above extract. There were doubtless many strangers in church that Sunday morning to whom the message was specially applicable. Mr. Salt was one of them, for when we met him the following day, he said, That was a word in season to me yesterday. I am one of the weary in want of rest. Thus the door was opened for unreserved conversation on spiritual subjects. Surely the Spirit of God was to be recognized in this. It is His work to quicken the conscience, to break the false peace of the heart, discovering to a man his own true character in the light of eternity, and thus impelling him to put the momentous question, What must I do to be saved? We do not say this anxious inquirer had no difficulties to overcome, or doubts to be met, or fallacious conceptions of the method of salvation to be removed. Of these he had many, but he was willing to become as a little child, that he might enter the kingdom of heaven. In short, it was evident that such an earnest seeker after rest and truth would ere long be a happy finder. For as we have somewhere read, when a soul seeketh after salvation, there is another seeker, even the good shepherd, who goeth after the lost sheep, and never gives up till he finds it, and carries it home on his shoulders, rejoicing. Still, the light did not burst upon his mind at once. It came upon him gradually, like the dawn. Perfect rest did not at once take possession of the troubled breast, but at occasional intervals he had some experience of it. After this interview we had no difficulty in freely conversing with him on religious themes. He seemed always ready to be instructed in the way of life. Several letters are now in our possession which indicate the state of his mind at this time. One of these is as follows. Methley Park, 21st April my dear Mr. Belgarni, I hope you will forgive me for not writing to thank you for the kind letter I received a fortnight ago. I have had plenty of time both to read and think about it, not having been to Bradford or Saltair since the third instant, which was the last day I was able to leave home. I was obliged to give up the Leicester journey, but I hope to be able to go to Bradford tomorrow. I hope I have been enabled to believe that these our trials are for our good, and that our Heavenly Father intends them as such. I assure you I often peruse your kind note, and shall endeavor to profit by your kind advice and counsel. I feel great responsibility to the giver of all good, and pray to be directed aright, and to put my whole trust in Christ, which is the only sure foundation. You will have all the news from dear Amelia, I am, dear sir, yours ever, Titus Salt. 
by and by god sent another affliction which though grievous at the time was a means of great spiritual good his second daughter fanny fell into declining health the first cause of anxiety in reference to her state occurred at scarborough where she was seized with slight hemorrhage from the lungs from this period it was evident that great care would be needed to prolong her life and every means that skill and love could devise for that purpose was brought into requisition amongst these was a sojourn at pa and st leonard's during two successive winters with several members of her family sometimes the fond hope was cherished that the insidious disease was arrested at other times the hectic flush and diminished strength dashed that hope to the ground methley park was especially attractive to her its secluded walks she loved to frequent but much as she enjoyed the beauty around it seemed rather to point her thoughts and affections upwards than bind them to earth we had frequent interviews with her then and received several letters which revealed such a spirit of gentleness calm resignation and simple reliance on the merits of christ that it seemed to those who knew her well she was fast ripening for the better land when the time of her departure came it was very sudden but she was ready on a summer evening in august eighteen sixty one when the family were about to retire she was seized with alarming symptoms in the library from which she was unable to be removed there on a couch she lingered till her gentle spirit returned unto god who gave it her remains were laid in a temporary vault in the church of saltaire until the family mausoleum was completed we stood with the father that day at the grave of his daughter and drove back with him to methley when the funeral service was over on our way his thoughts seemed to linger by the tomb he had left for once he said with much emotion i could have laid down beside her in response to the remark that this visit to salt air had been a very sad one yes he said the only sad one there i ever had some time after this painful visit we came back with him to salt air and this was not an occasion of sorrow but of joy he had long been in the twilight, as it were, hesitating and halting between Christ and the world. Blessed trouble that had brought him to see that full decision for God is the only way of peace and safety. It was, therefore, as a declaration of his faith in Christ that he went to Saltair, that, with other communicants, he might partake of the Lord's Supper for the first time. It was a day never to be forgotten early on sunday morning we set out for methley in the family omnibus his wife and daughters being with him on the way thither hundreds of tracts were given away or dropped for the villagers to gather the church at salt air was then undergoing alterations so that divine service had to be conducted in the schoolroom the visit of course awakened much interest among the worshippers who had rarely before seen the family among them on the sunday but to himself the occasion was invested with greater interest than it could be to any one else there was to them nothing outwardly to distinguish it from other sundays save that mr salt remained with the members of the church and took his place at the table of the lord how he seemed to enjoy that service 
the sermon preached, he said, was worthy of being written in letters of gold. The theme of it was soul-winning, and seemed to affect him deeply. It may be mentioned here that no discourse was ever effective in his judgment, however eloquent and argumentative it might be, unless it grappled with the conscience and struck the chords of the heart. His thankfulness, simplicity, and tenderness on this occasion were most touching. Surrounded as he was by the colossal buildings which his own hand had reared, it was truly beautiful to behold him now, as a little child, at the feet of Jesus. That hallowed scene stands vividly before our imagination, and we still seem to hear him say, This is the day I have long desired to see, when I should come and meet my people at the communion table. Shall we not describe another service that took place in the evening after we returned to Methley? In the entrance hall of the mansion, all the people of the estate, together with those of the household, were gathered. It was an unusual sight, in that ancient hall often familiar with scenes of another kind. There, gardeners and grooms, gamekeepers and footmen, gatekeepers and domestics of various grades, were met to worship God. Those who could not be accommodated in the center of the hall occupied the steps of the great staircase, while on the oak dais, where in olden times the lord of the manor had feasted, with his retainers seated below him, sat a Christian family to mingle their voices in thanksgiving with their servants. And when the story of redeeming love was preached, it seemed as if many eyes were eager to gaze upon the divine sufferer, and willing hearts ready to crown him as their king. No, without star or angel for their guide, who worship God shall find him. Humble love, and not proud reason, keeps the door of heaven. Love finds admission where proud science fails. Religion crowns the statesman and the man, sole source of public and of private peace. End of chapter 13